Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Week in Review. Congress gave final approval on Wednesday to President Joseph R. Biden's massive $1.9 trillion stimulus package as Democrats acted over unified Republican opposition to push through an emergency pandemic aid plan that carries out a vast expansion of the country's social safety net. We're on the verge of what could be a major economic boost in this country as President Biden prepares to sign the $1.9 trillion bill he's calling the American Rescue Plan. By a vote of 220 to 211, the House sent the measure to President Biden for the sign-off, cementing one of the largest injections of federal aid since the Great Depression. On this vote, the yeas are two. 220, the nays are 211, the motion is adopted. It would provide another round of direct payments for Americans, an extension of federal jobless benefits, and billions of dollars to distribute coronavirus vaccines and provide relief for schools, states, and small businesses struggling during this pandemic. The bill represents the first major legislative victory for the Biden administration as the president seeks to move the country past the chaos of Donald Trump and his Twitter feed, fulfilling the central promise of his campaign, which was to deal with the pandemic head on. This bill represents a historic, historic victory for the American people. Everything in the American Rescue Plan addresses a real need. Together, we're going to get through this pandemic and usher in a healthier, and more hopeful future. So there is real reason for hope, folks. There's real reason for hope, I promise you. While Republicans argue that the plan was a bloated blue state bailout that would bankrupt the country, they're playing a losing game with what has become a wildly popular piece of legislation. Unlike previous bailouts, which were half the size, this one carries widespread support across the nation, with 70% of Americans favoring it in a Pew Research Center poll released this week. Overwhelming public support. Every public opinion poll shows overwhelming support for this plan. And for the last weeks, it's shown that. In the face of total GOP opposition to the bill, President Biden is taking no chances and plans to aggressively sell the benefits of his plan directly to the American people, hoping to avoid a repeat of what happened in the aftermath of the 2009 financial bailout and passage of the Affordable Care Act when it was Republicans who defined the legislation and spun what should have been a crowning Democratic achievement into a grotesque distortion of the bill's meaning. This time, though, Biden wants to ensure that he and his fellow Democrats get full political credit for the first major victory of his administration. Following his primetime address to the nation, Biden is planning an aggressive campaign to sell Americans on the benefits for them of the relief package. And he, he, he went along with it and we saw what we have today. And now he has to sell it. He has now a whole month to sell this to the American people. Uh, again, they want to they want to avoid the mistake they feel that Obama made by not selling the big bill that passed in 2009. Uh, they feel they have to go and take credit for this, especially as Republicans are, uh, for whatever reason, um, trashing it. Next door to the congressional proceedings, the Senate was voting to confirm Merrick B. Garland to serve as attorney general, giving the former prosecutor and widely respected federal judge the task of leading the Justice Department at a time when the nation faces domestic extremist threats and the reckoning over civil rights. 
Judge Garland has vowed to restore public faith in a department that was weaponized under President Donald J. Trump to do his personal bidding and punish his enemies like me while undermining federal law enforcement when it scrutinized him and his associates. The Senate just voted to confirm Merrick Garland as the next attorney general of the United States. Judge Garland has amassed a storied career in the law. He clerked for the Supreme Court Justice William J. Brennan, worked for years as a federal prosecutor, and led major investigations into the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing and others before being confirmed to the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit in 1997. Well, first of all, he got 70 votes, 70 to 30. That's one of the most lopsided votes for attorney general in, in modern times. He was chosen by President Barack Obama in 2016 to join the Supreme Court, only to see his nomination held up for eight months in a shameless and hypocritical political maneuver by Senator Mitch McConnell that proved prescient when Trump's presidential victory paved the way for his appointment of two judges to the bench. But I suspect that the first order of business for Merrick Garland when he gets into the Justice Department after he's sworn in will be to keep a promise he made when during his confirmation hearing, the first briefing he'll get is on the Capitol riot cases. Now more than 300 people have been charged. And there are some big questions that uh, are still unresolved. Who murdered Officer Brian Sicknick uh, and uh, who planted those two bombs outside the Republican and Democratic National headquarters. Judge Garland must confront the rise of domestic extremism as law enforcement officials continue investigating the January 6th storming of the Capitol. This will likely become a politicized endeavor as the FBI has found evidence of communications between right-wing extremists and White House associates, underscoring how closely Mr. Trump has alleged himself with such groups during his presidency. This includes his former political guru, Roger Stone, who has become a target as well due to his alignment with Stop the Steal and other extremist groups. Now for the Trump news. <laughs> Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance's anal probe into Donald Trump and his personal finances continues to move at a furious pace. With the forced release of his tax records, investigators are digging into decades of potential criminality and finding potential gold nearly everywhere. This week, Vance extended his official probe to include a Chicago development deal where the lender, Fortress Management, forgave a big part of Trump's loan, more than $100 million. Fortress has not been charged with any wrongdoing. Breaking tonight, new signs that the Manhattan District Attorney's Office is expanding its investigation into former President Donald Trump. We're learning that prosecutors have subpoenaed documents related to a $130 million loan that the Trump Organization received for its skyscraper, I'm sorry, in Chicago. The question is whether the Trump Organization properly recorded the forgiven debt as income, which would require the company to pay tax on it. Prosecutors are examining whether the company misled lenders or insurance brokers about valuations for other properties as well. Their interest in Fortress relates to a $130 million loan the company made to the Trump Organization for the construction of a luxury hotel and condo tower in Chicago. By 2012, Fortress subsequently forgave more than $100 million of the loan, which including interest and fees, was worth about $150 million, according to court filings. 
The forgiveness was done to secure a partial repayment of about $45 million at a time when the real estate market was suffering from the financial crisis. Remember, it wasn't the murder or racketeering that got Al Capone, but his failure to pay income tax. I want you to get this fuck where he breathes. I want you to find this Nancy boy, Elliot Ness. I want him dead. I want his family dead. I want his house burnt to the ground. I want to go to the middle of the night. I want to piss out his ass. In recent days, lawyers for Donald Trump have sent out cease and desist letters to the Republican National Committee, the National Republican Congressional Committee, and the National Republican Senatorial Committee. For what? For using his name and likeness on fundraising emails and merchandise. Trump, who made his real fortune licensing his likeness to anyone who pays, remember Trump mattresses and those disgusting fucking steaks, is nonetheless sensitive now over Republicans using his name and likeness to reel in small dollar donations. Trump is basically going 3-6 mafia on his own party, telling them, keep my name out your mouth. And here's where the rubber meets the road, folks. At the end of all the moralizing, speechifying, and Twitter rages, we know one thing to be true. It's all about the fucking money. And the party that Trump hijacked and destroyed, they will get nothing and like it. I want potatoes. You'll get nothing and like it. Trump wants all the money to come through his own pack in order to control the party and the message. Also, because there is little restriction in terms of how that money can be spent. Trump only cares about himself. And one of the things the GOP has now discovered is he does not care about them and they do not know what to do about it. The infighting over money comes as the party struggles to chart its path forward after losing the House, the Senate, and the White House during Trump's tenure, with moderate GOP leaders pushing the party to ditch Trump while much of the GOP base remains firmly behind him. And as I've said time and time again, money is the coin of the realm when it comes to politics. Whoever controls the majority of this small donor cash will find themselves at a distinct advantage. If it's Trump, he can shine his tractor beam on Trumpian candidates in GOP primaries. It also highlights how the future of fundraising, at least for Donald Trump, is in low-dollar contributions, not the class of super donors who have largely indicated that they want absolutely nothing to do with him after his months-long push to overturn the election and incitement of the January 6th insurrection. Without the Mercers and Koch's gazillion-dollar wallet to buy him influence in elections, Trump must replace that lost money with millions collected from the kind of $20 donation your Uncle Eddie makes when he's drunk shopping for camo pajamas and racist bumper stickers at 2 a.m. I'm really rich. I'll show you that in a second. Trump's actions could give him a stream of money at a time when his private company is struggling under the scrutiny of investigations, with some discussions of whether properties need to be sold. For good or ill, Trump's business is now politics, and he's going to milk the shit out of this moment until the fucking cow drops dead. Pistol shots ring out in a barroom night. Enter Betty Valentine from the upper hall. She sees a bartender in a pool of blood. Cries out, my God, they killed them all. Here comes the story of the And now for the main event. Earlier this week, the nation briefly held its breath at the specter of renewed unrest 
As jury selection began in the trial of Derek Chauvin, the Minneapolis police officer charged in the murder of George Floyd. Nine months have passed since Chauvin put his knee on the neck of George Floyd in front of a Minneapolis grocery as he gasped for air and eventually stopped breathing and died. The ensuing days of rage saw the Twin Cities go up in flames as protesters swarmed the streets to protest a police force that had long been antagonistic to people of color. Those protests soon swept the nation and lasted for weeks, kicking off a national reckoning with race unseen in this country since the 1960s. Among the impassioned speeches and calls for change was the spotlight that was put onto the criminal justice system as a whole. The inequities in the system have compounded upon themselves for decades and are a result of this country's own systemic racism and use of mass incarceration. The statistics are daunting. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, the U.S. incarcerates more people than any nation in the world, including China. And the U.S. is also the leader in the prison population rate. America's approach to punishment often lacks a public safety rationale, disproportionately affects minorities, and inflicts overly harsh sentences. There are over 2 million people in jail and prison today, far outpacing population growth and crime. Between 1980 and 2015, the number of people incarcerated increased from roughly 500,000 to 2.2 million. More than one out of every six black men who today should be between 25 and 54 years of age have disappeared from daily life. Incarceration and early deaths are the main drivers behind their absence. A history of incarceration has been linked to vulnerability to disease and even premature death. That much of the system has also been outsourced to private corporation, which elevates the problem of mass incarceration into a true crime against humanity. That we are warehousing millions of human beings, many of them African American, for the profit of corporate entities will be looked back upon history with revulsion and fucking disgust. Tied to this problem of mass incarceration are the glaring inequities within the criminal justice system itself. At any point in time, there are countless individuals sitting behind bars for crimes they did not even commit. Wrongful convictions in the United States are estimated to be somewhere between 2 and 10% of all overall prison population. Now this may sound low, but when applied to an estimated prison population of 2.2 million, the numbers become staggering. Right now, anywhere from 46,000 to 230,000 innocent people are sitting behind bars. My own interest in prison reform came because of my own experience within the prison system. Until I was wearing an orange jumpsuit, though, I had no idea what conditions were like for those behind bars. But let's face it, I was partially guilty and I did what I did. Still... I was witness every day to a stunning array of abuses from the very top on down. Today, though, I am honored to have on mea culpa Jason Flom, whose wrongful conviction podcast has done more to spread the word on the miscarriage of justice than just about any media entity. The show has been downloaded over 10 million times and highlights cases that deserve an extra look. Flom also works with the Innocence Project itself, who perseveres against all odds to free scores of wrongfully convicted individuals each and every year. 
Flam doesn't come from a criminal justice background, though. His day job is running Lava Records, which he founded and is one of the most successful music executives of the past four decades, having discovered everyone from Skid Row to Katy Perry. But it's his work with the wrongfully convicted that fuels his passion, and today we meet via Zoom for a discussion that is long overdue on Mea Culpa. So let's listen now to that conversation. As someone who has been thrown inside solitary confinement, and I was there for 51 straight days for politically motivated purposes, and had my rights repeatedly violated by the Department of Justice and former um, Attorney General Bill Barr, my views of the criminal justice system has changed drastically once I was actually inside and became part of the system. Now, I'm curious, as someone who has worked so long to change a flawed and a truly broken system yourself, what what, what are your hopes uh, for the Biden administration when it comes to criminal justice reform? Wow, that's a big question. You know, I have a lot of hopes um, and, you know, I'm an optimistic person generally, so I'm trying to temper my enthusiasm here. Right. But the fact is, um, look, it starts with them appointing judges. I hope that they're going to appoint judges that are fair judges, that are judges who actually adhere to the letter of the law, uh, that don't come in with, uh, you know, an agenda. Um, and I hope that they're going to expand the judiciary. Um, I think the two main things that I would say, Michael, are they need to expand the judiciary. And everyone's focused on the Supreme Court. I'm talking about the district courts. I think that the fact is you have district courts that are some of them are 17 to one Republican. I forgot which one, if that's the Eighth Circuit or one of them, you know, replacing a judge here or there is not going to really do it. They need to expand these courts, which makes sense anyway, because the judges often talk about how they are overburdened with caseloads. They don't have time to address the, the influx that they have. So let's expand the courts. It, it's an easy thing to do. I hope they'll do it. That's number one. Now, it's easy. I mean, you still need 51 votes, but, you know, it, it, so it's not easy, but it's doable. Number two, EDPA, right? So EDPA is a dreadful law, and there's so many terrible things, a dreadful piece of legislation. But one of the things about that law that is so destructive to the rights of our citizens is the fact that it makes it virtually impossible for the federal courts to overturn a state court conviction. So the, the, the legal, what it, what it said in essence is that the higher court, and you see this like with Brendan Dassey and other cases like that, the higher court has a standard that they have to say that no other judge could have possibly ruled the way that judge did. I mean, it's ridiculous. So they, they can, they, they, so we literally have so many cases that are, screaming for justice that are obviously wrong, but they go, hey, our hands are tied. So who, who benefits from that? It's crazy. So I hope that they'll expand the judiciary and overturn EDPA. And I think both of them are possible. Well, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to the Supreme Court, I have a similar position to you on that. First of all, I don't believe that anybody, and I mean Supreme Court justices as well, should have lifetime appointments. I just don't, I don't understand it. I never understood it. That's pre-Trump, post-Trump, when I was first in law school. I never fully understood how you can get appointed to a position, and that position is for life. 
right? I mean, at some point in time, it just, to me, I don't understand it. I mean, it, it reminds me too much of the old feudal system, right? With the lords and the, you know, um, and the, the, the kings. It just, to me, it didn't make any sense. Nobody should have a job for life. And that specifically goes to our federal court judges. I believe, and I truly do, that federal court judges, they're not held responsible when they screw up on their cases. They have that judicial immunity. I'm a perfect example. I mean, my judge, Judge William H. Pauley III, I think his sentencing guideline when it came to me, and I think his ruling was absolutely 100% wrong. I don't think he looked at any of the facts. But then again, how could he? The whole thing happened in 48 hours from the time that I was noticed of what was happening to the time I was told. You either plead guilty from a Friday at 5.30 p.m. to a Monday morning or we're filing an 80-page indictment that's going to include your wife. And I said, oh, shit, no problem. Now now you want to bring my wife into it? Just tell me what you want me to plead guilty to. And what bothered me the most is I did some research on Judge Pauly. Judge Pauly's a bright man. This is a guy who went to Duke and then Duke Law School as well. This is a guy who I've read some of his opinions. They're quite astute and yet ignored every single basic fact simply because the prosecutors, and I find the prosecutorial line in my case, were legitimately corrupt. And I, and I say that very sternly. I believe that their whole goal was not to prosecute me. It was to convict me. And hence why it was all done within 48 hours. And that's what my second book is going to be about. It's going to be about from the beginning, meaning the Steele dossier, all the way to the second remand of me because I refused to waive my constitutional rights. But then there's so many other people that have also been put into the system wrongly, like Reality Winner, who was a whistleblower, on the Russian collusion or their Russian interference in our election. And then they put her in prison. Now, she's an interesting case because many things that I'm capable of doing, which is to get out based upon COVID as well as um, reductions in sentences and so on, she's not entitled to because the charge that they brought against her was treason. And that just takes you to a whole nother level of crazy. And that's what those prosecutors needed to do. So I'm, I don't believe that judges should have lifetime appointments. I truly don't. And I think that system needs to be changed. I mean, think about it this way, like over at 500 Pearl Street, you have the Department of Corrections, like on the fifth floor, you have the uh, <laughs> you have the prosecutor on the sixth floor and the judges on the seventh floor. You're right. Anybody that tells you that they're not all working together, it's separate, they're on different floors, is, I, I got a bridge. I got two bridges to sell you, not just one. Hate doing taxes? I know I do. And there's a lot of people out there who love to do them for you. But I'm not talking about tax specialists. I'm talking about cyber criminals and identity thieves who are looking to steal your most precious financial information. During tax season, your personal info, like your name and social security number, may be emailed and shared more than usual. Criminals can steal info from your devices and sell it on the dark web, or use it to commit other crimes, even years down the road. Tax season is a great time to be a cyber criminal, making it the best time to help protect yourself by using Norton 360 with LifeLock. 
I use it myself to protect my information from prying eyes and to practice good data security. This tax season, opt into cyber safety. Help protect against cyber criminals from stealing the info shared on your devices, spying on you over Wi-Fi, or stealing your identity. Now, no one can prevent all cybercrime or identity theft or monitor all transactions, but don't let cyber criminals make tax season extra taxing. Save 25% or more off your first year of Norton 360 with LifeLock at Norton.com slash Cohen. That's 25% off at Norton.com slash Cohen. Let me, I'm glad you brought that up. Now it's, you know, on my show, as you know, I'm the host of a podcast called wrongful conviction and that show we, I interview people who were wrongfully convicted. Many of them were sentenced to death. Others life in prison without parole. A lot of them were railroaded, framed, et cetera. Many of them confessed to the crimes they didn't commit. Some of them even took pleas as you did because they were faced with an even worse outcome than had they gone to trial. And there's a name for that. It's called the guilty plea problem. There's a hashtag, hashtag guilty plea problem. But we have cases, like there's a case in Texas. There's a guy named Clinton Young. Okay, you can look this up. Clinton Young is on death row in Texas. In Clinton's case, the prosecutor was moonlighting as the judge's assistant. He was writing the opinions for the judge in the fucking guy, Clinton Young is on death row for a crime he almost certainly did not commit. This is not hyperbole. That's what happened. He was doing this for 17 years. It was going on. What in the fuck are we talking about? What kind of system is this? It's ridiculous. I mean, we like to think the lady, lady justice with the scales, right? And it's, it's about, there's nothing balanced about our system. And by the way, I do think it's good that the administration that Biden has already announced that he's abolishing the death penalty on the federal level. That is, way overdue. I mean, don't get me started on the death penalty because, you know, we have, you know, and listen, there was a case I was involved with, Marilyn Malero, who came home last year, who was on my podcast. She pleaded guilty and was sentenced to death anyway because her attorney didn't even bother to make a deal with the prosecutor in Chicago. She pleaded guilty to a crime she didn't commit. She didn't even speak English at the time. She was a kid. And they sentenced her to death because her, her, her attorney, who retired after her trial, by the way, and became a priest. Now, okay. And by the way, I think I'm pretty sure his name was Lynch. Okay. How about that? The attorney named Lynch sent his own client to death row, even though she pleaded guilty to a charge she didn't even understand. She didn't speak English. So if you want to talk about what's wrong with our justice system, we're going to be on here for a long time. I hope your audience has a lot of patience because I can get pretty worked up about this shit. And I haven't even been through what you've been through, and I never want to. Yeah, and I don't blame you. I mean, you, you may remember it. There's an excellent article that was written in 2014 by Judge Jed Rakoff, one of the uh, Southern District uh, Federal Court judges here. And the title of that article is Why Innocent People Plead Guilty. And I tell all of my listeners, and I'm telling them all right now, if you have the chance, it's like a four or five page article. And I strongly, strongly recommend anybody that's listening to this. And I would ask you to talk about it on your podcast. Why Innocent People Plead Guilty by Judge Jed Rakoff, one of the most respected federal court judges here in New, in New York, in the federal system. And it's, it's really terrible because one of the things that he says is that prosecutors are no longer in the business of prosecuting. They're in the business of conviction. Now, out of my, my prosecutorial line, which was like seven different people, five of them have already left. And five of them are now either at white glove firms making seven figures a year 
or one of them is over at, I believe it's Guggenheim Partners. I mean, you want to talk about a what the fuck moment? And each one of them turns around in their bio and says, successfully prosecuted case, biggest 21st century case of U.S. versus Cohen. The fuck kind of, that's not a prosecution. It was, it was a hostage video. That's really what me standing up before the judge was. It was a hostage video. They wrote the allocution and they're, they're, listen, I don't believe that there should be prosecutorial immunity. I, you know, I truly don't. I don't believe that judges, federal court judges should have lifetime appointments. And I also don't believe that the Supreme Court judges should have lifetime appointments. That's just, that's just me. But now just moving forward for a sec, Jace, is Merrick Garland someone who would have been at the top of your list to run for the Department of Justice? No, but let, before I get to that, let me ask, let me just say one thing, which is that it's important for your audience to know that 97% of felony convictions in the United States of America are a result of guilty pleas. So you're absolutely right, Michael, to point out it's not so much prosecuting as processing these days, right? And the problem is we covered a case on my podcast, wrongful conviction of a guy named Messiah Johnson. So get this, all right? This guy, was offered a plea of three years. This was an armed robbery. Nobody was hurt. But it was an armed robbery. He didn't do it. And they knew he didn't do it. But he was a black guy. They picked him up. It was good enough, right? So he didn't have a record. So they offer him three years. He says, I'm not taking three years. I didn't do the crime. He goes to trial. You know what he got? 137 years in prison they gave him, right? For an, for an armed robbery, which nobody was hurt. Now, again, he didn't do it. He served 19 years. He was still working to get him a pardon, which I'm, I believe me, it, if it's the last thing I do, I believe I'll be able to help him get a pardon, a full pardon, because everybody knows that he's innocent. So the fact is, that's what you're facing with when people say, why would anybody plead guilty to a crime they didn't commit? Well, you're one example. And then take those examples. Or they say, listen, we're going to give you the death penalty. You know, unless you plead guilty, we'll give you 20 years. And you're sitting there. Your lawyer might be drunk. They might not know your name. They don't know anything about your case. They could be handling. Some lawyers are handling public defenders, handling 400 cases a year. They don't even show up for some of the court dates, not because they're bad people, but because they're down the hall at another courtroom. They can't be in two places at once. So you're sitting there going, well, I got to take this plea because. I'm going to go to prison for the rest of my life if I don't. Uh, so, yeah, and I encourage people to serve for everyone. I always say on my podcast, serve on a jury. You get that jury duty notice, serve on a jury. Listen to Michael's show. Listen to my show. Stay woke because what you're seeing, you can't necessarily believe what you're being told as the gospel truth when you're sitting in that jury box and somebody's life is on the line. So be aware of these things and please serve on juries and vote. Vote, 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 vote. Now, back to Merrick Garland. I'm, listen, obviously, the people in, in you know, w we would all love to see somebody, with a civil rights lawyer, somebody with that background coming in, a defense lawyer, uh, career type of person. You know, we knew that was unlikely. Merrick Garland is a, 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 from what I know of him, and I'm not an expert, I haven't studied the man, uh, you know, I know that there's, People who feel different kind of ways about him. Um, he's not a certainly not a liberal guy, but I, you know, my understanding is that he's a fair man, that he's a fair minded, serious uh, uh, judge and jurist. And my uh, my hope is that he's going to take a, a serious look at the real problems that exist you know, bold action, 
in this incredibly powerful position that he now holds or is about to hold. <laughs> As you just mentioned, his predecessor, you know, he is great. <laughs> Merrick Garland is great compared to what we're used to dealing with. He has got stars circling around his head and doves flying and, and, and you know, angel wings. And we're all very optimistic that he's going to do, uh, you know, good things and, and make changes that we all know desperately need to be made. Well, I, actually, he was one of the top three that I had talked about way before even Joe Biden made an announcement on who the individuals that he was considering for this extremely important and prestigious position as you know, the head of our Department of Justice. And I have to be very honest with you, he really was um, one of my top three. There's just something about him which I find to be even-keeled. And as you said, um, he's, he's, I think he's a righteous man. I think that as Joe Biden continues to put things before him, which the president is obviously supposed to do, not the president like Donald Trump putting before Bill Barr how to weaponize the Justice Department and to make it the Department of Injustice, but rather when Biden talks about, I want to see something in prison reform. Well, I could see somebody like Merrick Garland, who is a serious guy. He's very organized and he's methodical from everything that I've seen about him. They will put the right person in place because right now we have a guy in uh, the Bureau of Prisons by the name of Michael Carvajal. And I want you to think about this for a second. In 2018, in the month of December, President Trump stood up with a piece of paper and that stupid Sharpie and, you know, and he held up the First Step Act. And this was supposed to be something I remember being in prison at the time in Otisville. And I remember people cheering in and clapping and, you know, um, basically cursing me out because of my position against Trump and saying that Trump is the first president that's doing something that's going to help inmates, that he's going to help to get us out faster. Well, it's now two years later. There's still absolutely no specifics when it comes to what's called the pattern. And that's a recidivism program that they were supposed to have in place. The argument that the BOP uses is that they don't have to start to implement this until 2022, despite the fact that there were two precedented cases out of federal court in New Jersey by Judge Bum, B-U-M-B, um, where she turned around and she goes, you're absolutely wrong about your interpretation. So my hope is the first thing that Merrick Garland does is he starts to reorganize the Bureau of Prisons, make them responsible for at least adhering to the First Step Act, which will help many, many federal inmates get out of prison so that they can become reunited with their family and reintegrate themselves back into society quicker. You see, this is the big problem. We here in America, we've made incarceration into a business. And in order to keep the business flowing, you have to have your, you know, your low level federal offenders so that they can take care of the medium like we had in Otisville. You know, people always say to me, oh, what was Otisville like? What was it like? Well, prior to the COVID and being put into the bad side behind the fence, there were no fences. If you really wanted to escape, the way you do it is you call an Uber. 
And it would pull up right to the door. There were basically for 120 guys. There were two guards. It was very lax, but there were rules. And you had to follow the rules. As a buddy of mine, Big Minty, used to say up there, you got to follow the rules. If you follow the rules, everything goes easy. Unless you're Michael Cohen, because all of the guards that were big Trump supporters made my life freaking living hell. But look, that's the, the first thing that I hope that Merrick Garland does is he forces whoever's going to become the new head of the Bureau of Prisons to start getting those places under control. Because truth be told, most of the federal prisons, at least the one that I was in, is a fucking shithole. Oh, I mean, some of them are so terrible that it's just people would be, I think, absolutely shocked to know that people are being served frozen, like literally frozen food, like still frozen. They're being served rotten food that is expired. Every aspect of these places. I mean, there are some like the one in West Virginia that is so <laughs> barbaric. Jason, I got I to gotta tell you something. This is God's honest. This is God's honest truth. So I was with a buddy of mine, Big Mike, and a and a small crew, and we were fixing all of the fire hydrants. I became an expert, you know, in fixing fire hydrants because none of them worked. And Mike is really very talented uh, in contractor, and he knows basically everything. So we're out there fixing it, and a big giant shipment showed up to the warehouse. I mean, I'm talking about like five pallets. And look, you know, being nosy, I moseyed on over there because I knew all the guards that watched the warehouse and half the guys that worked there were close friends of mine. So I mosey over there and I'm looking, this is, this is not bullshit. This is 100% true. And I look on the side, it's 35,000 pounds of frozen chicken from Canada, from Canada, right? The expiration on that frozen chicken was 10 years ago. It was 2010. Wait, you can't make this shit up. But, but what made it even worse, a buddy of mine saw it. He said, Michael, come here. You got to see this. So I walked to the other side of the pallet. And you know what it said on the side of the pallet? What? Not for human consumption. Yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> now I've never, I've, I've never had a piece of chicken in my life. I don't eat chicken. I've never had a piece of chicken in my entire life. So I didn't personally give a shit. But could you imagine 35,000 pounds of frozen chicken from 10 years expiration that's not meant for human consumption? And this is okay, right? Because somebody's making a ton of money off of, off of this deal. That's all I can say. I mean, that stuff should have gone to animals for animal feed at best. I don't know. I know, I know a lot of animal lovers, a lot of dog lovers and so on. None of my friends who own dogs. Because they love some of them love their dogs more than their kids would ever feed this shit to their animals. Not a chance in the world. Now, listen, these the, these prison conditions in America, they don't get the attention that they should. But, you know, the federal prisons are absolutely in, in total disrepair. The abuse that these people suffer. I don't know how they survive it. You know, we again, I'm back to my podcast, Wrongful Conviction. I interviewed a guy named Jimmy Gardner, who was. Uh, in prison. He was actually in a state prison, but in West Virginia for a crime he didn't commit. He was framed by a corrupt uh, forensic scientist who, who framed over 100 people. But that's beside the point. But he was in a prison that had been condemned for six years and the windows were broken from a riot that had happened years earlier and they never fixed them. He said one winter it got so cold that it was snowing in his cell. OK, he told me he had to take his shank 
and break the ice in his toilet. And I've heard this from more than one person that he had to break the ice in his toilet just to be able to use the toilet. Now, not to mention the pipes are frozen. So forget about that. And there we said there were days at the time when you couldn't get out of bed because it was too damn cold to get out of bed. So because it's snowing in the fucking cell. I mean, now, by the way, I want to get back to the DOJ for a second, right? Because I was just looking something up now. First of all, you probably know about it, but many of your audience, people in your audience might not know. There's a wonderful organization called Families Against Mandatory Minimums, and that's FAMM.org. Please go there now. I'll wait. Okay. So one of the things that FAM is working on now is pushing for the rescission of the Trump DOJ's Office of Legal Counsel memo that would require over 7,000 people currently on home confinement to go back to prison when the pandemic is over. So there's actually going to be a town hall Wednesday night with, with we're going to have five people that are going to be affected by this stupid, horrible opinion. Uh, we're doing that. And you can learn about it at FAMM.org. You could join. The other thing, something that's I've been, I've been very focused on for a long time is the crack cocaine disparity. It's time that we fix this once and for all. It's a federal law. It used to be, Michael, that crack was treated 100 times more severely than coke in the federal system. Now, you don't have to be a, a, a sociologist to figure out why that is, right? The fact is that crack was a, was a drug that was done almost exclusively by people of color, and coke was a drug that white people did. So the, the Congress decided to pass these more harsher and harsher sentences. Crack, the demon drug, there's always a demon drug. Crack is actually pharmaceutically just cocaine. There is no difference. Now, I don't do drugs, even though I'm also getting so worked up in this conversation. People probably think I'm doing it right now. But the fact is that so for a tiny little, like the size of a little sweet and low package or a little package of sugar that you put in your coffee, people were going to prison for five years or more in the federal system because it was crack, not coke. Now, you have thousands and thousands of people in the federal system under these old laws. Senator Durbin sponsored a bill back in 2010, it was 2010, which lowered it. He had to negotiate with Sessions. And the best deal he could get, he actually talked about this on my other podcast, Righteous Convictions. But he talked about he had to do some horse trading in the gym with Senator Sessions in order to get them, the Republicans, to agree to lower it. And the best he could get out of it was 18 to 1. So till still to this day, it's 18 to 1. And it's even worse than that because it wasn't changed retroactively. The Republicans wouldn't agree to that. So you still have people serving 25 years or more for small, relatively small amounts of crack cocaine that were sentenced under a law that we now acknowledge is illegal and incorrect. We spend a lot of time on the show talking about our broken political system. Much of it seems beyond our grasp and, dare I say, unfixable. Sometimes, though, you just don't want to think about it and wish that the problem would just go away. The same goes for when something's off in the bedroom. Rather than fix the problem, we pretend it's not happening and hope it just goes away. Well, folks, it doesn't. You need to take control of your own life and fix what's broken. What are you waiting for? Go to Roman.com slash Cohen now. With Roman, you get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your own home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. And the whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash Cohen and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without even leaving your home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. 
So go to GetRoman.com slash Cohen now. You'll get $15 off your first month. It's really time to take care of your ED. And remember, get started today and you'll save $15 on your first order of ED treatment. Jason, when I was there at Otisville, we had guys that were still doing time for marijuana. Right. One guy was moving like 10,000 pounds. He got 15 years. Could you imagine? Whereas now we have publicly traded companies that are moving 10,000 pounds an hour. And I, I will tell you, I feel bad for the guy who had the broken window and the messed up cell where he had snow coming in. When I was in the second time, when they remanded me based upon retaliation, when I got into the cell, toilets were broken. The window was broken. I had to use the socks that they gave to me in order to try to plug up the window. And every time it would rain, the rain would just come straight in on me. And it, right afterwards, of course, what do you get? You get the flies and you get all the gnats. So it was 103 degrees in that cell with no air conditioning, no ventilation, broken window with just a room filled with gnats. I mean, I was just bitten up all over. My heart goes out to that guy because I was only there for 15 days living like that. I can't imagine more. But I do want to jump into another topic on presidential pardons. Now, presidential pardons are given customarily at the end of a president's term and very often are an opportunity to grant clemency to those wrongfully convicted. Now, unfortunately, under Donald Trump, the, the entire process just became a disgusting transactional orgy of self-dealing, mostly through Jared Kushner. Now, describe your dismay, if you would, at the opportunity squandered by Donald Trump to do something meaningful at the end of his term. Did anyone truly deserve, you know, actually benefit that was received during Donald Trump's, we'll call it pardon term? There were a few. Of course, everyone knows about Alice Marie Johnson. There were a few. Um, but when you talk about a few, it's a tragedy to say that so few were granted a clemency. This is a power that has been underused for many, many years, ever since the Willie Horton disaster, right, where the Republicans weaponized this one individual who had gone out and committed a crime uh, while he was on furlough. And it turned Dukakis from a winner to where he lost you know, almost all the states. That wasn't the only thing. There was that stupid picture he took in the tank and everything else. But the fact is that the, and, and you know what's crazy, Michael? I was giving a, a lecture with a Georgetown University class, a professor named Mark Howard in a maximum security prison in Maryland called Jessup. And I met Willie Horton. I was like, holy shit, you're Willie Horton. He goes, no, man, I'm innocent. I was like, Willie. I honestly think everybody's innocent except you. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Anyway, it was a crazy <laughs> moment. But the fact is that it's it's funny, but it's also it's not. But the fact is that ever since then, too many and almost almost every governor and president has has looked through that lens and said, oh, what if somebody comes out and does something bad and it'll look bad for me and it'll hurt my reelection chances or my legacy or whatever? That's not the way this is designed. The system is designed. That power is given to the president and to the governors because they are the last resort. They are the stopgap when the system fails, which it does far too often, right? We probably have close to 200,000 innocent people in prison in America. Think about that number. And, and that's not hyperbole. But that is their responsibility to, to take action when they see that the system collapsed on an individual who did not get justice. They need to step in and they need to do what's right, not by thinking about is this politically 
expedient for me or is this something that is, uh, you know, they need to do it because it's the right thing to do. Now, we're seeing more governors. Governor McAuliffe was terrific on this. I think that he's going to be uh, hopefully elected again. He'll be a fantastic governor. And there's other governors that are doing good things. Governor Inslee. Hold on, Jason. Let me ask you this, because since we're talking about the federal pardons here, one of those people pardoned by Donald Trump, right, was the rapper Little Wayne in a widely, widely criticized bid for self-preservation. Little Wayne endorsed the president and even posed for a picture with Trump. Now, considering you mixed in both criminal justice circles as well as the music world, what did you hear in regards to the behind the scenes orchestration that led to Little Wayne's pardon? And was there an express, we'll call it a quid pro quo, endorse me for president and I'll give you a pardon? Did you hear any of that? Now, I'm just wondering if you could fill in the details for my listeners here. I literally don't know anything of what happened with that. I, I can and I can say with uh, uh, with with a, a total uh, sincerity that I think Little Wayne is a damn genius and a national treasure. Uh, it doesn't you know that doesn't speak to the question that you asked, but I think that he is one of our greatest artists and that we have in the entire music business. I mean his his level of output and his 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 consistent brilliance is is phenomenal so personally i i you know i'm i don't know what he did or didn't do i'm not here to judge the guy i'm personally very happy he's not in prison so i i don't know what happened or why or whatever but i hope that he you know stays stays uh, uh, free and makes a lot more great music for all of us to listen to okay well then speaking of pardons we'll move on there you had kim kardashian on your wrongful conviction podcast how much credit should she get for pushing the topic of criminal justice and prison reform into the mainstream? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked, Michael. Kim, and people ask me about this a lot, as you could imagine. Kim has been a phenomenal uh, advocate. Um, she is, from the first time, she's been on my show twice. We, we, uh, we discussed the case of Julius Jones, an innocent man on death row in Oklahoma, who were hoping uh, it may be, maybe, you know, looking at a window of opportunity for him to actually come home. She was on my show originally a couple of years ago. I did an interview with her on wrongful conviction. She was focused. She showed up on time with no drama. She was, uh, uh she's like a, 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 she's very smart. Obviously she's smart. She didn't build this empire by not being smart, but on this particular topic, she has an acute level of intelligence combined with a real passion. And, you know, that comes from the fact that on her first try, her very first effort, the Alice Marie Johnson case, she was successful. And what that meant to her is the same. I had that same feeling the first time I was able to get somebody out of prison, a guy named Stephen Lennon back in 1993. And that feeling is an unbelievable feeling. And she has a heart. She has a very big heart. And the fact is that she is now, I mean, look, she could be doing a lot of things, right? And, you know, she has an, an army of fans. So, she, so certainly she has her detractors too, but that's part of being a celebrity. But she could be doing a lot of things with her time. This is how she chooses to spend her time. She's getting her law degree. She is out there day in and day out. This is not a hobby for Kim. I can tell you for, for absolutely certain, she is totally committed to 
doing everything that she can to right these wrongs. And I personally, as someone who's been doing this, like I said, for almost three decades now, I am thrilled to have her, uh, her voice and her energy and her passion and her and her brain devoted to this cause. And I wish we had more. I'd like to clone her, to be honest with you. Yeah, I don't, I don't believe you. And I give her a lot of credit for this as well, which is, you know, I look, I'm not a fan of the whole, you know, um, Kardashian, uh, Bravo, whatever the television station that it's on. I, I, I don't understand it. I'm not interested in it. But I do give her accolades for taking her star power and using it for something that is so necessary and so desperately needed because there are so many people that have star power, maybe not as great as hers because hers is pretty damn significant, but they just, and eh, they come out and they say, Oh, it's wrong. It's wrong. But they don't actually do something. You see, what bothered me the most when I saw what was going on between Kim uh, and Kanye, when they brought them to the white house, the problem is that, I personally know what Trump was up to. Now, I want to be very clear about this. Trump doesn't give two flying shits about prison reform. He doesn't care about black people. He doesn't care about brown people. He doesn't care about white people. Donald Trump doesn't give a shit. He's an equal opportunity. I don't give a shit about you. That's just who Donald Trump is, especially if you're a felon, if you're, you know, if you're convicted. He cares even less. He just lacks any empathy whatsoever. What he was looking for for Kim was not guidance, like you're talking about in your Wrongful Conviction podcast. He wasn't looking for guidance. He wasn't looking for somebody who could be the face of prison reform. He was looking to take her 100 plus million supporters and make them his solely for the reelection. Short of that, he doesn't give a shit about Kim and the things that he would say about her year after year after year from the time that she first became famous and got her television show to the time that she probably left the Oval Office with, um, with Kanye after they had, um, you know, met regarding prison reform. He doesn't care. It was all about him and what he can get off of her back. That's all that he cared about. And when he realized shortly thereafter, well, you know, uh, we just um got this one lady out of prison and I didn't get the bump up that I was expecting. Now, had, of course, the entire country and the media put on front page of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Associated Press, Donald Trump greatest thing since sliced bread in, you know, when it comes to prison reform, Prison reform right now would be in hyperdrive. But because he got no bump out of it, he didn't give a shit. He was like, fuck it. Put it to the side. Next. Right. Let's let's lock up a bunch of, um, you know, a bunch of Muslims or let's turn around and lock up a bunch of children from San Salvador. And let's see how that does for my name recognition and whether I get front page news. And if that would have been a big bump for him, that would be in hyperdrive. That's just how morally and emotionally corrupt this man actually is. No, there's no question. I mean, he's a pure malignant narcissist. I, I believe he's a very sick, sick person. He hates, in my view, he hates everything and everyone except himself. And he doesn't derive joy from things that give other people joy. It seems to me he only derives joy from hurting people. And that's, that's you know, when you put a person like that in a position like the one that they, that he was somehow 
put into, you're going to end up with a real problem. Now, bear in mind, he also loves executing people, right? I mean, the fact is the federal government executed more people in the last six months of his term than the federal government executed in the last 60 years. Okay. That's, that's, I mean, think about that. That's crazy. And, you know, and one of the Brandon Bernard was, 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 you know, well, he was innocent of the crime he was convicted of. He wasn't totally innocent of anything, but he was innocent of the crime he was convicted of. Lisa Montgomery, a woman who had dealt, who had been abused in ways that would make people lose not one night of sleep, but a year of sleep. If you knew what this poor woman went through, she committed a terrible crime, but she was mentally gone. Like she had been through unspeakable, horrific abuse from the time she was a little child. And it went on and the authorities did nothing to help her. And then we sit here and we go, oh, my God, she committed a terrible murder when she was. But the fact is, we had every opportunity to help this woman when she could have been helped. We could have prevented that from ever happening. And then we go and execute a person who is mentally ill, even though that is not allowed under under U.S. law. But they did it anyway. He loves executing people so much. He wanted to execute the Central Park Five, who were, of course, five innocent children of color. In the famous New York case, you're a New Yorker, I'm a New Yorker. So, you know, I mean, these are guys, three of them have been on my podcast. They're all my friends. And the fact is, they were all innocent and everybody knew it from the beginning. But it didn't matter. It was convenient. And he still, you know, wants to go out there and and and, and cast aspersions at them and, and, and say that they, you know, I mean, this has been long resolved in the courts and everything else. These guys are, they're, they're, they're great people aside from everything else. But um, but but you know, it's just it's so disgusting. All of it. It's so disgusting. The fact that our- for Trump, for Trump, Jason, it's it's a popularist view. And he's going to ride that popularist view to the you know, to the end of the road. No different than his popularist view in his mind that Barack Obama was not born in the United States. The whole birtherism. That's just Donald Trump. It's who he is. And it's just his fundamental character flaws. But in August of 2020, before this year's election, you gave what became a controversial interview on the Joe Rogan podcast. And in it, you and lawyer Josh Dubin pointed out what was obvious to just about anyone who actually followed politics and the law, which was that Kamala Harris was not this progressive champion as attorney general, but rather she held some problematic views for those that champion true criminal justice. If I'm not mistaken, the Innocence Project had to issue a statement disavowing your views and your connection to them despite over a decade of work. Can you walk my listeners through some of the issues you had or still have with Kamala Harris from her time as California Attorney General, then later as a senator? And also, why did they stir up so much ire? Have her positions evolved since then, in your opinion? And finally, in hindsight, do you believe you actually did um, Harris a greater service by poking holes into the myth created by the right that she was some radical leftist? Wow, that's a that's a lot of questions in one. Um, but the fact is that, um, you know, I did not see eye to eye with her uh, positions and her views uh, as, as she served as the uh, district attorney in San Francisco and ultimately the California AG. Um, I think that there, you know, there are a lot of very problematic, uh, uh, things from her tenure. Um, the, you know, the fact is that I, as I, as I said to her, 
after she received the nomination. I will crawl through broken glass to vote for you. And I will do everything I can to help the campaign because I think it's so important that Biden and Harris win because I think that we wouldn't have a country left if had they lost. Um, now, I do believe that she has evolved. Um, if you look at, for instance, her position on marijuana, I believe that she has now come out in favor of at least a partial legalization. I don't know the exact uh, words that she used, but she has clearly made it known that she's not opposed to legalization anymore. I think that's a huge step forward. Um, and I think that she is a person. Look, she's highly intelligent. Um, she's very uh, ambitious, obviously, and she's succeeded at uh, you know every step of the way. But I think that there's you know there are some very troubling things that make my heart hurt when I think about some of the things that she and her office did back in California. I think there are still people suffering as a result of that, and I cannot leave that unsaid. But Again, I mean, when you look at the alternative, it's nice to have somebody in there who's intelligent, you know, compare her to Mike Pence, right? And you go, wow, I, I, you know, it's like manna from heaven, you know? I mean, look at the difference. And you look at it across the whole platform, the whole administration, right? I mean, we now have adults in positions of power. We have people, cabinet people, right, who are actually qualified. I mean, it seems to me, Michael, that Trump, like you couldn't have designed a more perfect sort of Manchurian candidate, right? He put the worst possible person that that in the entire country in each position that was available, right? Whether it's Rick Perry as energy secretary, whether it's Betsy DeVos, like people that were committed to destroying the institutions that they they that they were supposed to protect. That's what he did. Like, I'm amazed we still are here. I mean, the country, listen, we went, we had to go through a lot of terrible pain over the last four years, but we're still here. And I think that we're, I, I'm, I'm optimistic now that things are going to really turn for the better. Well, you see, I, I happen to be a big Kamala Harris um, fan. I happen to like her a lot. I've had an opportunity to spend a little bit of time with her, and I think she's a fine person. Does that mean that every move that she made in her political um, history, I agree with? The answer to that is no. There are many things with everyone. Look, I'm married for 26 years. There are many things that I don't agree on with my wife, right? And then I have my children, my, my own, my blood, right? There are things I completely disagree, you know, that they do. However, on the whole, I'm with you compared to Mike Pence. You're not, it's, it's day and night any way that you describe it. Now, you know what? Let me just go back to the point that you made about Donald Trump putting people into certain positions. And I really think it's really important for my listeners to hear this as well as yourself. But Donald Trump picked many of these people based upon, again, his perception of the world. So you go ahead and you take somebody like Rick Perry. Why did he make Rick Perry secretary of energy? Well, because he's from Texas and Texas is a gas state, hence gas energy, right? So it's just a natural fit. Why did he make, as an example, Ben Carson, right? Why did he make Dr. Carson, right, secretary of HUD? Because he's black and because, because he grew up in, you know, what he, what Trump believes was, you know, housing projects. So therefore, right, he's black. He knows about housing projects. Fuck it. 
put him into HUD. That's how Donald Trump thinks. It is the most warped mindset that any person could possibly have. Not who's who's the right person for the job. He didn't have a transition book done. So anybody that was willing to take a position ended up in that position where you have like Ivanka as a special advisor. Special advisor to what? She's never done anything in her entire life, right? Jared Kushner, the same shit, right? What did he ever accomplish that daddy didn't buy for him? But look, I fucking had enough of them. Um, Jason, two weeks ago, let's, let's, <laughs> let's move on because you and I could spend hours talking nonsense. Two weeks ago, Governor Pritzker made Illinois the very first state to abolish cash bail as part of a sweeping criminal justice bill as it disproportionately punished poor defendants. Can you explain to my listeners the issue surrounding cash bail and how it's used to keep people in the system for months or even years, often for being very low-level offenders? Yes, I'm so glad you brought that up, Michael. So money bail is a clear violation of the 6th and the 14th Amendment. And what that is, is equal protection and due process. You cannot have a system of justice in America, the Constitution says this, in which two different people are treated completely differently for the same exact crime. So that means if you have a person who has money to pay bail and they're arrested, even they can be arrested together. Two guys, a wealthy guy and a poor guy get arrested for the same crime that they committed together. One goes home, the other one goes to jail. And if you go to jail, then the whole domino effect starts. Right. And so it's interesting, right? Because what we've learned, I started, I helped found a thing called the Freedom Fund in the Bronx back in 2008 or nine, which was the first bail fund in the country. Now it's a national thing. And the fact is that how this worked was that we were able to give money to the defense, the public defenders at the Bronx Defenders, that's the name of the organization, so that they could post bail for their own clients. In cases in which bail, I think we were limited only to cases of $1,500 or less. But thousands of people are going to Rikers Islands from the Bronx every year just because they couldn't post bail for turnstile jumping, for a low-level theft, for smoking pot, for, for drinking a beer in the park, for like all these trespassing, these ridiculous like nuisance crimes. And then they go to Rikers Island. Now, Rikers Island is the most dangerous and violent jail in New York State. It's worse than any of the maximum security prisons. I've spoken to so many different guys that have been in a lot of the maximum security prisons. They'll say Rikers is way worse than any of them. So now you have, we even have a floating jail in New York. We have a barge that's situated in between a sewage plant and a fish processing plant. And, and the smell in there could, could kill anybody. But that's beside the point. So you take people in Illinois or New York or anywhere, and you say, Khalif Browder is an example, right? Khalif Browder, let's just talk about him for a second. Rest in peace. Khalif Browder was a 16-year-old child in New York, was a black kid, was arrested for allegedly stealing a backpack, not with a knife, not with a gun, not with anything. They take him to Rikers Island. His family doesn't have $2,500 to post bail. He was there for three years awaiting trial. He was abused by inmates and guards, terribly abused. He was put in solitary confinement for two years. And finally, his case got enough attention that he was freed. The charges were dropped because he never did it in the first place. And he came home and hung himself at his mother's house. Now, the poor kid had been through torture that is something out of medieval times. And this goes on every day, all day, all over the country. 
in our jails. They're full of people like Khalif Browder who have done either nothing wrong or something so minor. And at one point I wanted to make, Michael, on the, on the thing with the Bronx Defenders of Freedom Fund, what we found, some people are saying, well, if you don't have to post bail, people won't show up for court. Bullshit. We had close to 99% of our people showed up for every single trial date. All we had to do was send them a text message. Hey, don't forget to go to court, right? And you get a message and you go to court. People don't want to not show up for court. They don't want those problems. And the thing about it is now you run into the guilty plea problem again. Because let's say you're in jail. They're holding you for a year, two years, whatever it is. You come to, you come to court. The prosecutor might say, well, Your Honor, we're not prepared uh, for this today. I had another case, whatever. My uh, assistant was out sick. The judge goes, okay, we'll adjourn for another. We'll see you back here in five weeks. Now you're going back to jail unless you plead guilty. So ultimately, almost anyone will plead guilty to almost anything to avoid going to jail. And by the way, if you go to jail on these low-level misdemeanors or whatever, right? First of all, we're supposed to be presumed innocent in this country, right? That Everybody knows that. You're presumed innocent. You're innocent until proven guilty. So unless you're an immediate danger to the community, there's absolutely no reason to hold anybody. you got to send people home to their church, to their kids, to their school, to their job, because even if you're in jail for three days, right, because you couldn't post bail, the statistics show you're 40% more likely, this is a University of Pennsylvania study, 40% more likely to commit a felony in the next year than if you didn't go to jail for those three days. It's because why? If you think about it, three days in, who's got a job where you just don't show up for three days? You lose your job. You might lose custody of your kids. You, you could lose your temporary housing if you've got temporary housing. So whatever problems you had before are now much, much worse, and you may have no choice but to resort to crime. So the fact is that it's a wonderful thing that Governor Pritzker signed this into law. Every state needs to follow suit. I encourage people to go to Civil Rights Corps. Check out Civil Rights Corps, C-O-R-P-S, on Instagram, Twitter, wherever. They're doing incredible work in this area. Yeah, that they are. And I again, I also applaud the governor uh, for that move because let me tell you, I've I've been there. I mean, I haven't been to the Rikers Island as an inmate, but I will tell you when I was on the other side of the fence in the EA block, which like the other place you were referring to, was condemned. That was the location where they brought all the guys from uh, Metropolitan Detention Center over to Otisville after they found the firearm and a bunch of cell phones at MDC. And um, they brought them all over to Otisville. These guys wrecked the entire floor. They they wrecked the entire block and busted out windows, toilets not flushing, not even connected, the beds just shredded. And that's where they put us. And that's where they had us in solitary confinement. So like like you, I mean, there's no place for you know, for people to be in shame on, shame on them and shame on the system. But most people don't care. Hi, folks, Michael Cohen here. And we've got an amazing sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics. So if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, you have to check it out. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show. Check out Tuesday's episode with revolutionary research neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett, who discusses her new book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. I also found time to catch up on some old episodes and listen to the January 7th episode with Javier Pena and Steve Murphy. 
the former DEA agents who took down Pablo Escobar. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether it's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy this show, and we think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Yesterday was supposed to be the start of Derek Chauvin's murder trial for the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Now, it's been about nine months since the first of the Black Lives Matter protests began. What, if anything, has changed since then in terms of actual reform? What's your opinion on that? That's a great question. I think that not, let's just say that not nearly enough has changed. When you see the, I think it was the most sweeping, largest protests in the history of the world, right? What happened over the summer in the United States. People were protesting, protesting police brutality and they were met with police brutality. I mean, it's really, you know, it's something that I think until this summer we thought would only happen in the, in the third world country. Um, but it happened right here. And the fact is that we need sweeping reform. And you look at Michael, it's interesting. The places started in, um, Eugene, Oregon, I believe that uh, they had a program there, um, uh, called Cahoots. There's a program they just pioneered in Denver, uh, which is a raging success. Over six months, they diverted 20% of 911 calls to actual first responders who showed up in cases of mental health crises, in cases of uh, maybe somebody who was um, even a domestic incident, uh, people who were committing, threatening to commit suicide, all these other domestic problems. They assigned and, and, and sent first responders who were trained to deal with these particular things. And you know what? I think that 748 response calls, not one person got arrested. No cops were called. Nobody went to jail. None of the people that were going to commit suicide committed suicide. Nobody got shot. Nobody got hurt. I mean, we need to approach the entire issue of police and policing in this country in a completely different way. We need to treat people who have needs as people who have needs, not people who need to be handcuffed, beaten with a baton, shot or abused in other ways. And we see it again and again. I mean, look, it, you know, it, it's every day, right? You see the nine-year-old girl get pepper sprayed, right? You see that 75-year-old man during the protest that was brutally assaulted by cops. You see it every day, people getting shot. I mean, this doesn't happen in any other country, only here. And they're, you know, well, you know, they're protected by all sorts of crazy laws and, and you know, different things. But, you know, we've got to approach policing in a completely you've got to reimagine the entire thing because uh you know 90 only only one percent of police 
911 uh, responses are to an actual violent crime in progress, right? People think that they, they're there, they're going to prevent crime from happening. No one's going to prevent crime from happening. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. They'll show up afterwards because they get called. The guy's not going to stand around and wait for the cops to come. You know, <laughs> so the fact is, you know, there's, I think, 4% of, of responses are of any type of violence whatsoever, and 1% is a violent crime in progress. So think about that other 96%. I believe that we need to take that money, which is, you know, New York City's budget is $11 billion for police. Billion, right? We need to take that money, which some cities are doing now, and we need to, need to reallocate it. This is not an original thought, but we need to reallocate it for social services, including mental health treatment, which is virtually non-existent, drug, drug uh, counseling, rehabilitation, job training, things like that. And then crime will, you know, will, and one more thing I want to say, interesting to look at San Francisco, right? San Francisco, you have Chesa Boudin came in as district attorney six months ago, seven months ago, reduced the jail population by 50%. And guess what? If you go to the San Francisco Police Department's own statistics, their own data, Crime is down in San Francisco 35.9% over that period of time while they reduced incarceration in the city by 50%. So, you know, do the math, right? We don't, we, we got to, we got to try a different approach. Look, well, Jason, but here's, here's, look, here's the problem. Like, you, you and I will agree on many things. And like everybody, there are things that we don't agree on uh, or we don't agree completely on them. I'm a supporter of the police, despite the fact what has occurred with me. I'm still a supporter of law enforcement. Um, despite what happened to me, I still have tremendous respect for our FBI and our intelligence community, despite what they did to me. And I, that I'm talking about going back to even the bullshit with the Steele dossier and remanding my case down to the Southern District after they knew I had never been to Prague. I had never paid compromise. I was never involved in anything that the Steele dossier called. I still have tremendous respect for our police officers, but I do agree with you in one thing that there is always the opportunity to do better. There's always a way to improve something. I mean, if you think about it, I don't care if it's your tires, right? Now they put steel belts so that they run flats. So you'll always be able to make something better um, by improving it. I'm not saying that there are things that the police can't do better, of course they can. It's no different than being a doctor. Surgical techniques get better. Medications get better. But I would not turn around and say that we need to revamp our entire police force or the way that they conduct um, themselves. I think you know, we, we all have to understand they have a job to do. It's a tough job. It's a very, like a teacher, it's completely underappreciated. And, you know, I, I'm like I said, I'm a big I'm a supporter of the police. I do believe that things like what happened to, you know, to George Floyd um, and to others are absolutely despicable. And the officer that was responsible needs to pay for what he did. It should never have happened. So many of these actions are done by rogue officers and i would want my listeners to understand what i'm saying here that i don't group the whole based upon the one bad apple right you know and unlike the adage right one bad apple does not spoil the whole bunch and that's just that's just my opinion but you know um jason as we're winding down the hour i have just one last question for you on february 26th 
You retweeted a news piece stating that, and in quotes, an estimated 115,000 innocent people are wrongfully incarcerated in the United States. I hold myself out to be one of those. The pandemic is making the fight for their exoneration even harder and riskier. Discuss this with me and my listeners, especially as so many nonviolent offenders, and again, myself included, have been given home confinement or sentence commutations. Well, I mean, look, we have a system that is uh, built uh, to process people, not to give them justice, but to process them into prison. Um, as uh, on my podcast, Wrongful Conviction, we have, an, uh, we have a show called Junk Science, and we had Chris Fabricant from the Innocence Project on. And he said the system is an efficient ki- eating and killing machine of mostly poor people of color. And that's the way it works, right? You have 2.3 million people in prison in America, right? 35 years ago, you had 300,000. What's changed, right? We lock people up at a rate that is unheard of in the history of civilization. We have more people in prison in America than Russia and China combined. And we lock people up at five times the rate of the rest of the Western world per capita. In fact, we lock black people up in America. Get this, okay? At six times the rate of South Africa during apartheid. Now, that's per capita. So what the fuck are we doing? I mean, this is insane. And as a result of the fact that the system is so overloaded, you're going to just process these people in. There's no time for defense. There's no time for justice. There's no time for anything. There's too many people. So as a result, you're going to have a lot of sloppiness at best. And some people who are bad actors who are more than happy to put innocent people in prison because it's expedient. And the fact is, at the end of the day, you have the best social science studies that, you know, people, social scientists that have studied it will say that anywhere from four to seven percent of people in prison are innocent. I think it's much higher because and think, think about that. Even if you take a mid case, you say five and a half percent at two point three million people. That's how I came to one hundred and fifteen thousand. But I think it's much higher because of what we talked about before, Michael, because you have so many people pleading guilty to crimes they didn't commit because pleading innocent doesn't make any sense when they have nobody to help them in court, nobody that's going to have that's going to give a proper defense, no ability to mount the defense. So they don't want to take the chance. They don't want to roll the dice. So as a result, we have a huge and and you know what? This is something it could affect. Look, it did affect you. It, it, it could affect somebody. Anybody who's listening, someone you love. I'm sure a lot of people listening have had somebody in their family or themselves who have been wrongfully convicted. Michael, I know we got to wrap up, but I want to read one thing if it's all right. Because going back to what we were talking about before about the jails, and this is, this is I think, really an important thing for people to process. This is from Alec Katsanis, the guy who started founded the Civil Rights Corps. Um, and he wrote in the Yale Law Review, this is just one paragraph from his article called The, um, the, it's called, um, the Punishment Bureaucracy, How to Think About Criminal Justice Reform. Okay, just one paragraph I'm going to read. On January 26, 2014, Charnel Mitchell was sitting on her couch with her one-year-old daughter on her lap and her four-year-old son to her side. Armed government agents entered her home, put her in metal restraints, took her from her children, and brought her to the Montgomery City Jail. Jail staff told Charnel that she owed the city money for old traffic tickets. The city had privatized the collection of her debts to a for-profit probation company, which had sought a warrant for her arrest. I happened to be sitting in the courtroom on the morning that Charnel was brought to court, along with dozens of other people who had been jailed because they owed the city money. The judge demanded that Charnel pay or stay in jail. 
If she could not pay, she would be kept in a cage until she sat out her debts at $50 per day or at $75 per day if she agreed to clean the courthouse bathrooms and the feces, blood, and mucus from the jail walls. An hour later, in a windowless cell, Charnel told me that a jail guard had given her a pencil and she showed me the crumpled court document on the back of which she had calculated how many more weeks of forced labor separated her from her children. That day, she became my first client as a civil rights lawyer. Now, that shit is happening right now. While you and I are sitting here in the studio about to go have a nice cup of coffee or whatever we're going to do, that is happening to another person in another city right now as we speak. And I think as human beings, we have a responsibility to stop. We have to stop this behavior, stop treating our people this way. These are American citizens. There's no reason they should be they should be tortured and, and, and left to rot. I mean, it's for traffic tickets, literally for traffic tickets. So anyway. And all I can say is amen to that. And I'm going to continue to do my thing. I'm going to continue to try to push for prison reform. I'm going to try to use all of the relationships and contacts that I have in order to impress upon this new administration, Merrick Garland, and many others on what really is desperately needed. And I want to just thank you for your insight. I want to thank you for your proactive um, prison, you know, attitude and um, your fight against this terrible injustice to so many people. And um, I look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate it. And by the way, one last, last, last point. It is it is worth noting that Derek Chauvin, who's on, you know, right now they're doing jury selection, right? As we're sitting here. This was not the first person that he murdered, right? This is, I, by all accounts, the fifth person that he murdered. So it's, it's you know, what, what are we doing when we leave somebody like that on the force? What are we expecting is going to happen? I mean, this is a psychopath, a violent psychopath who has done terrible, terrible things over and over again, but has been protected by the wall of blue. So, you know, I'm not saying everybody's like that, but I'm saying this, that that's, we can't leave that out. So anyway, I hope that justice is, is done in the name of George Floyd. Rest in peace, Mr. Floyd. Amen. Chase, thank you so much. Thank you. And now for today's mea culpa. I realized that my conversation today with Jason Flom was a departure from the regular mea culpa format. But this topic is one that has become a central theme in my life. As a convicted felon, even one that sits at home inside my Park Avenue apartment, my day is spent dealing with an infinite array of petty indignities. Let me be clear that I am not comparing my experience behind bars or my treatment in the criminal justice system with the same weight as those who flom champions. But the fact that someone like myself with the means to hire the very best legal representation can nonetheless be fucking squashed like a bug by the system means that those who lack the ability for good counsel do not stand a chance. Once you enter the system, you become part of an ecosystem that degrades the human being to the point of non-existence. The ability to maintain your sanity, not to mention your sense of self-worth, is a Herculean task that is challenged on an hourly basis by a million things beyond your control. And even if you do your time and get out, a felon will be marked as a felon for the rest of their lives. I must reckon with this fact on a daily basis. It is the letter that will be stamped upon me to my dying day, but is also the source of my strength and ultimately what saved my life. I am not ashamed to be what I am, and I truly believe that some of the best human beings I've encountered were individuals I met behind bars. 
There were folks who, despite making terrible mistakes, were paying the price for what they did and trying to salvage something for themselves out of that wreckage. What I can fathom, having done my time inside the prison walls, is what it feels like to be there when you're truly innocent. The system that puts you there is created to bury you inside its walls and remove any sense of hope. The idea that someone is doing their time for a crime they did not commit makes me crazy just thinking about that fact. Now compound that notion by years and decades. How these individuals find a way to persevere to me is astonishing. Not only that, but they maintain their own sense of dignity in the face of horrific abuse by a system that truly seeks to destroy them. These people are heroes in every sense of the word. I hope today we honor them just a little bit. And thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up in association with Midas Touch. And it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen. Produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick and executive producer Jared Gustav. And it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment and this unprecedented transfer of power. I'll be with you every step of the way. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. This is my mea culpa. Support for this podcast comes from Pluto TV. Need an escape? Drop into Pluto TV for a world of free TV. Stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. Yeah, free. No subscriptions, no fees. Imagine 24-7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, Survivor, and everything else from hit movies to binge-worthy TV shows, the latest news, live sports, comedy, and more. What are you waiting for? Download the free Pluto TV app for Android, iPhone, Roku, and Fire TV and start streaming now. Pluto TV. Drop in, watch free. Okay, guys, we gotta put our trays up for takeoff. Where's Dad? Oh, he's in the back. We could only get three seats together. Daddy has my pillow. Okay, well, we'll get it later. Can you not put your feet up, please? Why aren't we going? I'm not sure, honey. We must be in line for takeoff. Like security? Well, that was a different line. I have to go. We just sat down. But I have to go. The seatbelt sign's on. Why aren't we moving? Hey, no picking. We're just 15th in line for takeoff. Son of a... Don't go there. Go on a real vacation. Go RVing.